After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other's disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal, charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. The word of the Lord. So many of you are very uh, familiar with the updated polling on religious participation in the West and in the U.S., and the rise of the largest or fastest growing religious group in America, which is that of the nuns, right, N-O-N-E-S, people who do not associate with any religious side at all. It's skeptics and doubters. It's particularly high amongst millennials and Gen Z, so people 35-ish and under. It tends to be the, the main fastest growing religious group is identifying as, as none, nothing at all. And, and honestly, it's because, look, it's actually hard to believe in God. If you've grown up always believing in God, that's not a given thing. It's hard to believe in God. It's hard to kind of go into the intellectual process of being able to believe in God whom we don't see. And so for many people, I think it's just easier to not associate with anything at all. But I find that when I'm in a conversation with somebody who associates in that way, kind of an agnostic, a skeptic, a doubter, what I always want to do is get to this question, what do you do with Jesus? You've got to do something with Jesus. Who he is and what he claimed. Deal with Jesus, and then figure out whether you believe in that God. With churchgoers, religious people, it's actually not much different. Because I think with many of us, especially if you're like me and have grown up for many years, your whole life in the church, we begin to have these assumptions and associations with Jesus that are both true and sometimes distorting. So, as a faithful Christian, you would believe that Jesus is God, as I do. But we can also get to a point where we so exalt him, so glorify him, that he is wholly other, that this God is basically unapproachable. Or we add on all these religious rules, and then that, that God, that Jesus is completely unappealing. John 21, that we just read, the first half of John 21, pulls us back to the appeal of the real Jesus. 
the real Jesus in his risen humanity. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. The real Jesus, get this, the real Jesus has a personality. You might even say he's a bit of a character. Like, you have friends or you have kids that are like, oh, a lot of character, a lot of personality. Everything about Jesus, as you read the stories and the narratives of who he is, what he does and how he interacts with people, is not a two-dimensional cut-out figure. Nor is it the highly exalted Lord of the universe. It is a real person, God enfleshed. And we even get Jesus as somebody who has humor, playfulness, probably laughed a lot, and people laughed with him. Let's read verses 4 through 6 of this episode that's part of the resurrection narratives. What's happened is this is a, a couple days to a couple of weeks, a week or so after Easter. He's already appeared to Mary Magdalene. He's appeared in the upper room. He's appeared to Thomas, okay? And he's told them, go to Galilee. I'll meet with you there. So they're up in Galilee. They're waiting around for Jesus to show up again. Peter decides to go fishing, calls the boys. Hey, who wants to go fishing? I'm going fishing. Let's go. This is what we do. I'm a fisherman. And then it says in verse 4, just as day was breaking, so dawn is kind of hitting, the sun's not up yet, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples in a boat did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, or hey guys, boys, do you have any fish? They answered him, no, or no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. So look at a couple things that are happening right here. Jesus is resurrected, right? He's the resurrected Lord of the universe. He's overcome death, and he stands on the shore. His good friends are out in a boat, 100 yards, 200 yards off. It's dawn. It's kind of rising, and, and they don't recognize him. And he doesn't do anything to tell them it's him. He's not like, hey, guys, it's me, Jesus. How's it going? He intentionally hides who he is in some way. And then he says something that any passerby might say or somebody really annoying if you've had a bad night of fishing. Hey, did you catch anything? How's the fishing? And then he says, try the other side of the boat. And you can almost imagine Jesus kind of giggling inside, right? Like he knows what he's doing. He knows full well what's going to happen. He's messing with them. And he's harking back to their original calling three years earlier. Most of these guys that are in the boat are the ones that he called in almost the exact same way. In Luke chapter 5, we read one of the uh, iterations of this story. What happens in Luke chapter 5 is, is very early on in Jesus' ministry. He's preaching on the edge of the sea of Galilee, and there's so many people he has to get into Simon Peter's boat. Simon Peter and John and the others who fish with him have been fishing all night. They've caught nothing. Aha! Fishing all night, caught nothing. Jesus simply borrows their boat, pushes out from shore like 10, 20 yards, starts preaching from there so that he can have some space, like kind of like me to you guys right now. When he's done preaching, he says, hey, put out deeper, and let's, let's read here. Let's pick up in verse 4. And so when he had finished speaking, he says to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. Almost the exact same set of words. Well, except in the later one, he just says no. But at your word, I will let down the nets. Basically like, look, you're a carpenter and a rabbi 
and we are professional fishermen, we know these things. All right, I mean, yeah, you're the preacher, you're the rabbi, okay, we'll, we'll let down the nets. So they do. And when they had gone out and let down the nets, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners, goes on to say, so when Simon Peter saw it, saw the fish, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Peter's like, I doubted you. I see who you are. And he falls down, like, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. Jesus is recalling this whole event. And this whole event was probably one they retold over and over again, as friends do. And probably they even joked about Peter. Like, remember how you said, okay, fine, we'll let it down. And then all of a sudden you were like bowing down to him. Like, what an idiot, Peter. Like, that was so great, right? Remember that? And then he said, come follow me, and we did. Everything about this episode, Jesus standing on the shore, not letting it be known who he is, calling out to them, hey, did you guys catch anything? How's the fishing? To try the other side of the boat. It has all the tells of an inside joke. John Eldridge, in his book, Beautiful Outlaw, which recasts Jesus in the real human Jesus side of things, says it this way, this episode has all the wink of an inside joke. The running gag between mates, where over time all you need to do is start the first line and everyone cracks up all over again. Try the other side. And when they do, they probably, he's laughing. Try the other side, Peter. Does that remind you of anything? You know, because we worship Jesus as Christians, as religious people, churchgoers, I think, it, it, especially over time, if you've been a Christian for a long time, we begin to imagine Jesus in some way that ends up sounding or feeling almost, in, in my own head sometimes, almost like a stiff royal. Like, you know, it's like kind of the queen and then Jesus. Probably, you know, a, a proper accent, always full of comportment. I mean, he's the Lord of the universe, Right? Instead of what we see here, which is a guy who's kind of winking, probably giggling as he's saying things, trying to hide it, with humor and laughter and fun. And we get this if you actually look at the stories and read them. Even in the Gospel of John, it's filled with Jesus' playfulness in his words. Nathaniel and Philip, when they're first called in John chapter 1, he says, Nathaniel, I saw you under the fig tree. I know what you were doing. A chapter or two later, he's talking to uh, Nicodemus, who's this very wise, learned man. And of course, he throws him off of his game by, by saying the first thing he says, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, well, I can't be born again. I'm a large man and my mom's dead and you know, I can't do this. What are you talking about? And Jesus is just kind of probably, in a sense, trying to get him off kilter. He's messing with him, but in a good way to say, I want you to hear this afresh in a way that you can't hear with your intellectual, superior sort of mindset. And then a chapter later, he's at the well in Samaria, and the woman comes out in the middle of the day. This woman who probably was a prostitute who sees a man standing there and begins to have an interaction with him, and he says to her, give me some water. She says, aha, I know what you want. They have a playful banter going back and forth. Jesus is drawing her in, wooing her, but he's doing so not not as somebody who is going to, to take something from her, but as an older brother, just kind of messing with his little sister. Like, I love you. I'm here to protect you. I want to draw you in before he pulls the rug out from under her. 
He's constantly interacting with a playfulness. And in the resurrection narratives, what's amazing is he's always hiding, right? Like it, we just read it a couple of weeks ago in John chapter 20, at, uh, the disciples go to the tomb, or John and, and Peter do, and then Mary Magdalene's standing there, and she's crying, and there's the gardener, and what have they done with him, and I don't know what they've done with him, and Jesus is standing right there kind of, you know, in gardener clothes. I don't know. She thinks he's the gardener. She doesn't look at him. Why doesn't he just say right from the beginning, hey, Mary, it's Jesus right behind you. But he kind of lets her go through this thing. Then he says, Mary. She realizes it's him. In Luke chapter 24, we have a similar episode. We didn't read it and haven't looked at it recently, but it's one of those famous resurrection narratives where it's after the resurrection, but a couple of disciples have left Jerusalem and didn't know Jesus rose from the dead, and they're walking along the road to Emmaus, and then Jesus catches up with them and says, hey, what's the news, guys? Oh, you know, Jesus of Nazareth, we thought he was the Messiah, but he's been crucified. Oh, you don't say. Tell me more. He, he walks along kind of concealing himself in some way, walks along all day with these guys, several hours. They start having an interaction, and Jesus is like, well, maybe he was the Messiah. You know what the Old Testament said? And he starts quoting Isaiah, the Psalms. And they're like, oh, yeah, we didn't think about that. Oh, that's just really good. You have a lot to say. Can you keep walking? Hey, do you want to have dinner with us? Sure, I'll have dinner with you guys. The whole time he's hiding who he is. Why? I think he's having some fun. <laughs> And then he sits down at dinner with them, and he takes the bread and breaks it. And they're like, ah, we've seen this. Breaks the bread. Take, eat. Why does Jesus hide himself? It's almost like he's a mischievous little kid trying to play hide and seek. And I, I, it's, it's, I know it's a little, like, kind of beneath Jesus for him to be like this. We kind of want to lift him up a little bit, but, like, Maybe it's okay to be playful. Maybe God himself has a sense of humor. I certainly think Jesus has personality. And who, who makes friends more easily? Or rather, even to put it another way, who do you want to be friends with? Somebody who's very serious all the time and takes themselves very seriously? Or somebody who creates fun, is easygoing, able to laugh at themselves? Jesus was constantly surrounded by people who wanted to be around him. I don't think he took himself so seriously. I think he was easy to be around. Created joy and laughter and fun. And this is very different than the religious view of God or even a lot of the agnostic doubting view of God. It's not the God to avoid. Distant. Angry. True. This is the true God. And he's not just full of sense of humor, but he's also full of joy. And he's into lavish celebrations and eating together. We get this here in verses 9 through 13 of the passage that we just read. In chapter 21, verse 9, when they got out on the land, so after they hauled in all this fish, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them, and although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord, but they weren't sure, I bet. <laughs> Jesus came and took the bread, 
and gave it to them, and so also with the fish. So they get to shore, and what does he do? He's already got a fire going. Like, they've been fishing all night. They're hungry, they're tired, a little cold. He's got the fire going. He's got the fish, the bread, the fish are grilling. Jesus breaks the bread and gives it to them, kind of reminding them of the upper room. But it's also just eating together, having a breakfast together, like warming up around a fire with your good friends for some, well, I'd prefer like bacon and eggs, but they probably wouldn't have done bacon, I guess, and coffee. But this was the food that they loved, around the fire, just kind of being good friends again. Just giving them something of sustenance and, and the great joy of eating together. One of the great human joys. At other times, like in John chapter 2, Jesus does a similar thing, but way more lavishly. In John chapter 2, he's at the wedding in Cana, right? And at the wedding in Cana, they run out of wine, which is a horrible faux pas socially. It was degrading for the family, dishonorable. Jesus comes in and, you know, he ends up kind of taking these water jugs and he turns it into wine. And it, by the measurements of the day, if you kind of looked at it, Jesus creates some of the best wine these people would have ever tasted. In fact, there's a guy who's called the master of the feast or master of the ceremonies who's probably hosted multiple weddings. That would have been a role in the community, in the wider community, where you were like the one who was emceeing everything, making sure all the food was in the right place. You're kind of the wedding planner and the wedding host and the party host, and you're making sure everybody's having fun. And that guy had been to a lot of weddings. He's like, this is the best wine I've ever tasted. This is amazing. And not only was it the best wine he'd ever tasted, but for a village wedding maybe a couple hundred people, he creates 900 bottles of wine. Like, here, here's your four, here's your four, here's your four. Like, what are you doing, Jesus? A little out of control. Jesus is saying in this act, this guy might be the master of ceremonies, but I am the true Lord of the feast. Do you want to have fun? Do you want to have life to the full? Do you want to enjoy eternity even now? come to me. I will take your dirty foot-washing water and make it into lavish, amazing, celebratory wine. How different is that picture of God than the one that religious people often give us, or that we as religious people often give other people? Jesus wants us to step into the fullness of the joys of life. And think about it, God gives us good things in this life. Beauty, and art, and music, creation around us, a warm bed when you're just tired, a good book, or a good book in that warm bed, beaches, fires, eating together. In Genesis 2, God, as he is declaring stuff on humanity, says it is not good for the man to be alone. He creates woman, but it's really kind of declares to all human beings, it is not good for you to be alone. It is not good for you to be alone. But in that same segment in Genesis 2, God also says, I give to you every tree in the garden. Every tree. Eat, enjoy this beautiful, abundant, flourishing garden. Eat of everything. Eat and enjoy, be together. Communion, together, fellowship, friendship, family, food. All of these things are yours. And in a sense, when we eat together, if our mind is turned to the right way, and I think that's what was happening here in John chapter 21, 
It is an anticipation of heaven, of the new creation. Eating together can sometimes just be functional, like, oh, get the food in. But if the food is good and you're with people that you love or care about or want to get to know, it's a foretaste of heaven. And it is a gift from God saying, yes, sit, eat, enjoy. What a chef has created is amazing. The combination of, of flavors, get some salty, a little bit of sour or bitter, sweet, hot, cold, together, interacting, laughing. Think about the fact that God created us with these senses, to see something and think it's beautiful, to hear something and be taken emotionally, to taste something and be blown away. What do the gift of our senses tell us about Jesus? And then think about this Jesus who lavishes the wine, who sets up the fire and the, and the, and the breakfast for his friends. The one who is jokingly hiding from the disciples, having banter with people. The one who's giggling inside as he says, throw the net on the other side. Does this Jesus of humor and joy and playfulness match the version of the Christian God that you grew up with? Does it match your experience of church or CCV or your devotional life? I hope it does, but my guess is it doesn't that much. And to the extent that it doesn't, you and I, we are missing out and maybe even shutting ourselves off to the real Jesus, the true God. And that's the problem of our religiousness. And religious Christianity is the same sort of way. We have some senses of God which are actually true, like God is holy other, so W-H, holy, like holy other God. God is the creator of the universe, the sustainer of all things. He is omnipotent, omnipresent, all-knowing, God Almighty who always was and is and is to come. And sometimes we hear that and we create all these rules and seriousness in order to kind of like mitigate our fear of this God. We, it doesn't match the joy the humor of this Jesus. And then it's true that God is a holy God, H, holy, 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 we say, meaning he is set apart, he takes sin seriously, he's the judge of the universe, but that divorced from this Jesus creates a sense of constant guilt, which we then have to deal with with penance, or in the Protestant version of penance, too much emotion. So in Catholicism, you, if you feel guilty, you do penance. In evangelicalism, if you feel guilty, you, you try to create tears when you're asking for forgiveness. And then you wonder, did I feel guilty enough? Because if I feel really bad, then he has to forgive me. We create these versions of bartering with God. He's holy other. We have to be afraid of him. In Christians, we end up looking like lawyers and judges. Instead of enjoying God ourselves, sharing the good news of this joy and this Jesus with others. We as religious people are always trying to protect God's reputation or earn God's favor. Later on in his book, John Eldridge, talking about the same passage, says millions of people have spent years attending church and yet they don't know God. Their heads are filled with stuff about Jesus, but they do not experience him. 
not as the boys did on the beach that day. There are millions who, more who love Jesus Christ but only experience him occasionally, often stumbling along short of the life he promised. No wonder so many 18 to 35-year-olds identify as nuns and so many other people just reject Christianity altogether. But here's something I want us to remember. Jesus is God. Okay, so Christianity holds this. Jesus is God. What do I mean by that? Think about this. You want to know God. What is God like? I can't see God. What is God like? What is the fullness of God like? And God says, oh, you want to know me fully, completely? Jesus. The creator, Lord, holy, holy other God. What is he like? He's like Jesus. What did Jesus do? What was his personality like? His life, his sense of humor, his lavish, extravagant generosity of wine, his kindness and mercy to those who were crushed in spirit, his humility, his honesty. That's God. And think about it. (laughs) The disciples are fishing And Jesus is resurrected from the dead, right? So he's literally like in a victory lap form. He has just won. He has just conquered Satan and sin and death. He has just dealt with the forsakenness of the Father and dealt with all of human sin and created the the, the ushering in the new creation. The eternal kingdom is here. And now he has risen never to die again. He's entering into glory. And he invites them to breakfast on the shore. Hey, guys, come on over. Let's have some breakfast. Jesus does not stand there on the shore in his transfigured glowing state like in that passage in Matthew. He's not just standing there glowing like, look at me. He's not floating above them trying to show off like, bam, take this. Resurrected me. He's on the shore with a fire serving them. Just wanted to eat with them. Ordinary life is the stuff that God wants to use. We read this in verse 3. I didn't have us read it earlier, but verse 3, Simon Peter says to the other disciples that are there, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out. They went out into the boat, but they caught nothing. Everything about that has ordinary, mundane written all over it. Maybe you don't go fishing every day, but that was their career. That was their job. It's like, saying, hey, I'm going to go um, shoot off some emails. I'm going to go into the office because I have to print some things. Anybody want to come with me? Ah, it kind of sounds boring. It's the everyday mundane things. The sort of thing these fishermen did year in, day in and day out, year in and year out their whole lives until they started following Jesus. And Jesus, as he appears to them, again, is not transfigured, not floating, He's just a passerby, some dude on the shore that he can't really fully see who's like, hey, how's the fishing? Try the other side. He's just a guy messing with his old friends. He knows the joke. They eventually do too. What does that tell us about the nature of God? What does it remind us about the goodness and even the glory of ordinary life, of work and food and friendship and simple joys? Jesus 
wants to be with us in our daily life. In our emails and dishwashing, on the side of the soccer field as we're going through the grocery store. He's inviting us into what we've often talked about here as a sacramental life. Jesus will use daily life to show us himself, his love, to shape us. And daily and simple joys in life, like eating with your friends on the beach for them, can be a window into heaven, an opportunity to worship God. What we end up doing, though, most of us, is any of the good things in life, the joys in life, we turn them into objects of holding on to when they're not meant to be the thing that we hold on to. They're meant to point us to the one who has given them to us. Every good thing in life is meant to be an icon, not an idol. So an icon in kind of that Eastern Orthodox sort of way was an image of, say, Jesus on a, on a plaque or on a statue, and it was not actually Jesus. The Eastern Orthodox don't believe that's actually Jesus. It was meant to make you think of Jesus and worship Jesus, the risen Lord of the universe. When you worship the statue, that's called idolatry. It becomes an idol. We take things that are good in life, like wine or sex or work or sleep or pleasure or laughter, and we move them from being the icons that are meant to point us to the Creator and the good senses and joy that He gives us. And instead, we worship them. We want them. Jesus is saying, no, I want to invite you into a sacramental life, to see the joys of this life and have them point you to me. And in that, he's inviting us to respond to him. I love how Peter and John are so different. I'm going to end with this in verse 7. So they let down the nets. The whole thing happens, right? He's hiding from them. How's the fishing? Threw it on your nets on the other side. And there was such a large quantity of fish they couldn't haul it in. Then it says, the disciple whom Jesus loved, John again talking humbly about himself, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that, it was the Lord, he put on his outer garments for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. It's so classic. John John sees as putting these things together, oh, Luke 5, like the calling of Jesus. Oh, wait a minute, drop on the other side, the fish. It's Jesus. He's reasoning it out, thinking it out quickly, like it's firing. It's Jesus. Peter hadn't gotten there yet. He needed John to say, hey, it's Jesus. He's like, oh, it is? I'm going in. John's like, we'll just row this thing in. We'll follow him. It's just Peter, being Peter, right? The real Jesus The real Jesus wants you to know him, to be with him, and to enjoy him. And he will take you as you are. Intellectual, philosophical, rational, needing to reason it all out, like John, or loud and impetuous and emotional, jumping into the sea like Peter. He wants you as you are. It's like for each of us, every single day, the real Jesus is waiting on the shore for the real you. He's saying, come on in, let's eat together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we see these stories of the risen you, open our eyes to the God who made us and saved us, a God who is holy and holy other, but who also wants to be the friend on the beach with us.
who invites us in, who wants us to laugh and enjoy and eat and sleep and worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.